0: Uh, you really mustn't,
1: darling. I- What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode two of the second season of Can I Comment? I'm Michael. I'm Jake. And I'm here with Jake. And... Uh, <laughs> We're just going to keep rolling because that was, that was fun. We're recording this. Um, and so anyways, anyways, episode two uh, is going to be gonna be really good. We had the amazing Dr. David Campbell on. And uh, what do we talk about? With
2: we talked about, well, we looked at a toxic theology. We did look at a toxic theology. A little bit of a different toxic a theology. Twitch. Normally we look at like real progressive yep. theology people. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we know, progressive Christianity is not Christianity at all, right? as I famously like to say, but today we looked at somebody on the far right. The alt-right, alt-right
1: Christianity (laughs) is no Christianity at all. Is that what we're saying? So we took out, uh, we took a look at one of those and started talking about that and then just jumped into COVID and, um is God behind it? What is God saying to us through it? Yep. Um, and it's a great conversation. And it was good. You guys mostly agreed. We mostly agreed.
2: David's awesome. He's become a, uh, I guess, a bit of a mentor of mine um, and he's amazing. And we don't always agree on everything mm-hmm. as I think we'll come across in the conversation, but we know you're going to enjoy it.
1: But it was amazing. We love him. So, hey, listen, hey, before uh, we go to the interview, do us a huge favor, subscribe on iTunes. Spotify, YouTube, leave us a comment, leave us a review and, um, rate the show. That is a, uh, that's something you can do. That is a huge help. And, uh, Hey, listen, hang around. We're going to jump into this interview and we'll see you right back here next week. Thanks for being on. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, we, we start out every episode with, um, a thing that we like to call toxic theology. Uh, and we did this first, um, with, uh, Gabe and Nathan. So basically, what we do is we scour the so, internet to find
3: yeah, toxic uh, theology from them.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Especially we basically, one scour-
3: of them. I won't mention which one.
1: <laughs> so we we scour the internet to find um, just different posts from. You know, different, uh, generally more uh, theologians, people that would call themselves theologians on the progressive side. And so I'll read it to our guest as well as Jake, and then they'll respond. So, um, But today we're going to do it something a little bit different. I found instead of a theological tweet or post from somebody on the more progressive side, we found one that would be more on the uh, conservative side. So basically, I'm just going to read this post. I'm not going to say who it's from, so we don't shame anybody. Um, And then give you both the opportunity to just um, respond in real time. Cool? Okay. All right. So this is from uh, a pastor uh, who said this. The last 18 months showed everyone that the easiest place for cowards to hide is behind a pulpit. Pastors need to grow a spine. And this was from somebody speaking specifically to things like mask mandates, shutting down their church, um and all of that stuff. So this is from a pastor essentially saying that pastors who are unwilling to break mandates to have church um need to grow a spine. So I would love to hear
2: And probably not even just break mandates, but like be vocally in opposition against anything and everything related to Correct. the government. Yeah.
1: I believe this person has a sign out in front of his church that says masks not allowed here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh what would, what would you two pastors think about that?
2: I'll give you the first and last word, David.
3: <laughs> Coward. <laughs> oh, I think, uh, I, I think we've got a lot of things out of proportion, uh, in the body of Christ in the last year or so that we've been through. And, uh, I always say when you find Christians fighting for their own rights, um, then there's something wrong in the picture, because we follow the one who gave up all of his rights on our behalf. And I think that when Christians respond in love, mercy, and forgiveness to persecution, I don't really think you can classify having to wear a mask uh, as persecution, but even supposing for the sake of argument that it is, when Christians respond in love, mercy, and forgiveness to persecution, rather than trying to fight back, uh, then that's the, the the seedbed for revival. And mm-hmm. I told a story. Uh, now, nah, maybe I won't retell it. Uh, I might save it and see whether it's appropriate as we, as we go along. But so, you know, it's difficult to tell what this gentleman uh, is, you know, I haven't got the context for exactly. I mean, I can speculate in what he might be thinking of. I haven't got all the context of it. But I think that we've confused the political... It, Concept or a political concept of freedom with a biblical concept of freedom. That is what lies at the root of a lot of our confusion. Uh, it's when theology gets politicized. Mm-hmm. And so, biblical theology, when it gets politicized, and, and when the Bible gets politicized, and uh, does the Bible have any political application? Uh, yes. Uh, certainly, Romans 13 is one place to go. The entire book of Revelation is another place to go, um, however, uh, when we approach these subjects from a primarily political or philosophical perspective rather than a biblical perspective, uh, we run into trouble and so you know I'm, I'm not American so I, and I'm not going to take pot shots American either, Americans either because I, I love Americans any any that I've met, even you two rogues uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I Americans love freedom, and uh, it's it's built into the warp and woof of uh, the fabric of American society. You could look at it another way and say um, it also included rebellion against the crown when they threw the tea into the harbor. Uh, Americans, you know, you can't get a decent cup of tea, and you haven't been able to since <laughs> yeah. or whatever in the United <laughs> States. That's the price of rebellion. But in all
2: seriousness, <laughs> a decent cup of tea.
3: In all seriousness, uh, I think that if you allow, you're asking me as, as Americans, if you allow your uh, political view of freedom to influence the way that you do your theology, you'll come into confusion. And I'm not saying that the political view of freedom is, is all wrong either. Right. It's just that mm-hmm. as Christians, we do obey a higher law. And pastors like this are saying, well, there's a higher law. We, we've got to disobey the government because there's a higher law. Well, there's a higher law of freedom than that mm. which people understand from their political perspective. And the, the Bible, the biblical basis of freedom is not, you know, the maximum freedom uh, possible for the individual is, uh, you know, the best possible solution for every conceivable problem and is the best posture that Christians should take. No, that's Ayn Rand. That's not the word of mm. God. Mm-hmm. And so we just need to disentangle these things mm-hmm. because the biblical view of freedom is very, very different. It is a inner spiritual freedom that we have through salvation in Christ that no government, uh, no matter how oppressive it is, can take away from us. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry, that's rather a long-winded answer, but maybe you asked for it. No, we did. Oh, that was great.
2: There's a couple of things that I think are worth drawing out. I think number one, um, at the end of the day, T- taking individual personal freedom to its furthest possible extent is actually, it is the application of liberalism. Perfectly autonomized freedom is what happens when we take liberalism to its furthest degree, um, which any conservative thinker is going to kick against. And, and that's, that would be the argument that we would bring into uh, something like abortion, where we would say, actually, uh, there, is, there are degrees of restraint that we should exercise over our own personal liberties, where we recognize that just because you can doesn't mean that it's right to, doesn't mean that you should. And I think if we were to be intellectually honest across the, the grid of subjects and apply that same biblical understanding of freedom, which is not about being able to, being free to do whatever you want, it's being free to serve God and, and to serve others, then we would arrive somewhere, I think, very akin to what you're describing. Would you say that that's another way to put it correctly?
3: Yeah, I would. And Romans 13, you know, we we focus on the first seven verses, which deal with the Christian's responsibility to obey the state. Uh, and by the way, uh, the state and the emperor that um, in the context of when Paul was, was writing Romans in the late 50s was a man called Nero, who was not particularly favorable to Christians. In fact, he mm-hmm. hired them and set them alight in the Colosseum in Rome. Uh, and yet Paul says, you know, that we're to honor the one in authority. Um, but if we go beyond the first seven verses into verses eight nine and ten we find out that um, the the word of God commands us to love our neighbor that the law is fulfilled in the command to love um, and he, he actually says it's we have to pay all of our financial debts and our taxes that's the verse first seven verses but in verses eight to ten he says actually the debt to love can never be paid fully in this life because obviously none of us are ever going to love perfectly but The idea is that we're to love our neighbor because love fulfills the law. And so every command of the law, including not moving your neighbor's boundary stone or not coveting his wife or having honest scales or whatever it might be, all those commandments of the law have this golden thread of love running through them. And so uh, the issue when we face something like a pandemic, for instance, the issue isn't How can I maximize and protect my rights? The issue is how can I love and lay down my life for my neighbor? Mm -hmm. So uh, if uh, we had a a party of protesters come to our town a few months ago, and there were some pastors among them, sadly, and they held a, you know, anti-mask type rally, uh, the people in the town were very fearful because all they could see was, you know, a bunch of people bringing COVID into the town and 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 unfortunately, some of them doing so in the name of Christ. And uh, you could say, well, those people shouldn't be afraid. But the fact is, they are afraid. And the fact is that how do we love our neighbor? Our neighbor is not the person sitting beside us in church that agrees with everything we say. Our neighbor is the person down the street that may disagree totally with everything we say, you know, be in fear of their life at this moment due to COVID. Uh, so therefore, we fear we I'm sorry, we love our neighbor and fulfill God's law by being sensitive to uh where that neighbor is coming from. And mm-hmm. you know, if we really want to win them to Christ, that's the only way to do it. And that is a those are higher goals to love our neighbor and win them to Christ is a far, far more important thing to God mm-hmm. than protecting my freedom or running around town and going into Walmart without a mask on. It's absolutely ridiculous that people get so bent out of shape by it.
2: Let's parse that out a little bit. I guess, uh, on, uh, in one respect, I have a dissenting opinion, um, but not totally. And, and I think this is a conversation that you would just as easily be willing to have, is to some degree, and this, let's just this change hypothetically subjects away from mask or no mask, because um, I think that's pretty clear cut. Like it, it's just such a basic thing. But um, well, and even so in saying that, I support the of idea people. of. Sorry? It isn't to a lot of people. It's true. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I support the idea of letting that be an option for people. I do, personally. Also, it can be said that one way of loving our neighbor is being willing to speak up for truth in the midst of true tyranny uh, that really is an attack against freedom. And that can be a scary thing to do. um, But being willing to do it because you know what comes on the other side of truth being sacrificed is never good for society. It's never good for you or your neighbor. And so I think there is something to be said about that. And again, I don't necessarily think the subject of masks is the the best context to have that discussion in. But and then I think also, yeah, I guess let's go from there. I don't know. Yes, Does that well, bring what, any thoughts for yeah. you? What do you define tyranny as?
3: You see, to me, uh, or persecution. If churches are singled out, you know, churches are not allowed to open. Let's say, but everything else is allowed to open. Then right. that's persecution. You know, uh, but if churches are treated on an equal basis with everybody else, um, on the basis of a public health measure, then uh, we see, we have to realize that it's never easy to be a political leader. I think being a politician is an absolutely thankless job. If you're a political leader in these days, you're having to do things like pastors are having to do, which is mm-hmm. based totally unparalleled situations. And it's very, right. very difficult to do that. And I think, you know, we can sit back and take pot shots at political leaders and. Criticize them, but most of them are not all of them, but most of them are actually trying to find their way around a, a situation that hasn't taken place since the Spanish flu of 1918. And uh, I think the first thing that Christians should be doing is praying, is be- obeying the scriptures and praying for those in authority over us rather than taking pot shots at them. The, this is, the second point is that pastors have to be very, very careful not to meddle in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pulpit is not the place to express political views. Does that mean Christians shouldn't have political opinions or whatever? No. It means that uh, we recognize that there are men and women that God has called into the political sphere. I know people like that. And our job as as pastors is, if we have contact with the, them or they're members of our congregation, is to support and equip them, but let them do their job. Let them speak up because every time preachers get involved in politics what happens is is politics your message if it's your message then resign as a pastor and right. go and be politics. a politician right mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so i do not take positions do i have political opinions yes i have political opinions if i'm sitting with somebody that is a friend of mine a, a close friend of mine and we know each other's political views we can have a discussion on it but mm-hmm. otherwise i avoid it like the plague because mm-hmm. Here's what I don't no want. No pun intended. I don't, I don't want, here I'm talking about politics or something, and people are watching me, and they don't like what I'm saying, uh, because there's always somebody you're going to offend when you start talking about politics. And then they won't listen to what my message is, the message that God has given me concerning the gospel mm-hmm. and the presentation of biblical Christianity. Um, I will alienate people. And working in different countries and different social contexts, if I take a right-wing view, I'll alienate left-wing people and vice versa. So I just keep my mouth shut and I'll support political people and equip them any way I can to do their job in the political sphere.
2: Yeah, I think that's really well said. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I, and you might disagree with this, I, I do think that that is specifically applied here to the conversation around COVID and all of the milieu that comes along with, along with that. But there are things in both a uh, in in a right wing context and in a left wing context that are that can be antithetical to the gospel, and I think those are things that can be talked about and approached, obviously always with grace and humility, but um, not without clarity and strength as well.
3: Yes, that's easier said than done. Uh, if you're speaking as a Christian leader, uh, it's it, it's extremely difficult to wander into those fields without the perception that you're endorsing a political party. And the minute you do, you're finished because you have alienated everybody that votes for a different party. I mean, that's the way I look at it. And, and I speak as somebody who has an interest in politics. I do have an interest in politics. Right. And I think I'm quite well informed,
2: mm-hmm. um, but- I guess it depends on the issue, right? Like, yes. I abortion know for example- is,
3: Abortion is a black and white biblical issue. And I've yeah. always been very clear about that. But here's here's what I've done, what I did in mm-hmm. the years, many years I was a pastor. Um, when it came around to election time, I would say, you know, may God direct you uh, to vote for whatever party you feel led. Please look at their platforms clearly. But uh, what you want to do is support a candidate who is the most pro-life as possible. Uh, regardless of what party they belong to. You want to support a candidate who is pro-life because, in my opinion, that is the single most important political issue in your nation or in mine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of it is, is almost window dressing. And the reason I say that is because if you look at the Holocaust of millions of, and countless millions of lives that are being lost every year, Babies being massacred and so on. Then, if that isn't a bigger issue than anything else, like I'm not sure I understand what could be a bigger issue than that. So, I mean, from and it's black and white from the biblical perspective. So, Mm -hmm. uh, then, but let's not go out and say uh, as as pastors identify ourselves with Party A or Party B. It may well Mm -hmm. be that everybody you're talking to knows that Candidate A is is the only one that is pro-life and candidates B, C, and D aren't, that's fine, mm-hmm. you sh- you can still say, vote for a candidate who is pro-life and please do your research as a citizen because part of being a Christian citizen means being concerned for your neighbors and part of that responsibility is to be involved in some respect, in the political process, even if it's only just to vote. There's no excuse for Christians not to be voting.
2: Yeah, I mean, even that is probably a lot more than we've ever said around any kind of election. Yeah. Um, Whenever we talk about things that can be construed as political, the subject of politics never even comes Mm -hmm. up. We always try to talk about an issue itself, um, and that's, that's all that I mean when, it, when I'm saying it is okay to address specific topics. Mm-hmm. And those topics many times can be separated out from underneath their party. Now, I understand that people by extension are going to make connections to those parties, and, and that's okay. And I think a lot of times bringing in some kind of caveat and being clear, my mission here or my purpose here in this discussion is, is not to speak into any kind of political party. I just want to talk about this issue from a biblical perspective. And I like what you were saying about equipping politicians. And I think this applies to Christians in general. It's just equipping believers to approach all of life with a biblical worldview. And that really, to me, is a, a part of the pastor's role is to help Christians to think biblically about whatever issues may come up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? Well,
1: that was just going to be my my question. I mean, I think the perspective that you both had uh, was very much from the context of a pastor, mm-hmm. right? A shepherd. So, I guess my question would be: if we were to talk about just the the Christian that shows up in church, mm-hmm. that you know knows their Bible, that is doing the best they can to follow Jesus, would you say um, those same guardrails would apply, or would you say that because of the unique position that a pastor is in, they almost have to? be a bit more careful than just Mm. say that the normal Christian at their workplace or the university student or, or whatever that might be.
2: That's, that's good. I want to make sure I understand the question correctly. And then David, I'll let you answer first. Basically should, should Christians who aren't pastors, aren't leading churches, Mm -hmm. aren't leading Christian ministries, should they be as careful about not coming across as clearly partisan, partisan one way or the other, even though it's almost impossible to avoid that when you mention anything about a particular hot button issue. Right. Yeah.
3: I think that it's a little bit different, but any Christian is a witness primarily for Jesus Christ, Right, and so you're always thinking of, how do I fulfill the law of God by loving my neighbor? So is what I'm go- going to say to the guy uh, that I'm working with, or what I'm going to say to the college student that I'm studying with, or what I'm going to say to the lady next door, uh, or whatever... or or somebody that I meet at the gym, or, you know, at the kids' soccer game, or, you know, Mm -hmm. what am I going to, am I, is what I'm going to say to them going to, uh, you know, ultimately going to edify them, draw them closer to Christ, be a good representation of Christ, uh, or is it going to be something that is going to offend them, or make them mad for no good reason, or make them less likely to listen to me? So, I think Christians are called to be peacemakers, uh not warmongers. And uh, so uh, and, and I'm not a pacifist. So I'm not trying to say that before yeah. you put me off of the past there. But <laughs> we're we're supposed to be peacemakers primarily. Uh, and so we we're supposed to be bridge builders. And and so every even a Christian politician should be someone who's gracious, you know, they're, they have their own principles, they're prepared to stand for them, but they're personally gracious to those who oppose them. Mm-hmm. And they're not nasty, they don't tell lies, they don't exaggerate, they're truthful, and they come across as being approachable people, and mm-hmm. people that, you know, you actually like.
2: Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the real uh, key thing, right? Is It's not always about what you do and don't say, it's how you say it. And having speech that is seasoned with salt Um, is important. Jesus nor the apostles didn't shy away from addressing uh, issues of holiness, you know, Uh, but their language was such that they could not be accused of being bombastic, but they could be still disliked for holding a particular position on an issue.
3: Yeah, well, if you are called to the political realm, it's your job to have a position on the issues. Mm -hmm. And you're correct, it's then a question of How do you express that and i often think political leaders if they actually were prepared to apologize and acknowledge they've made mistakes Mm -hmm. which is what as christians we're supposed to do that they actually would be a lot more popular than Mm -hmm. than they are because it's Mm -hmm. when they are in constant denial that they've ever done anything wrong and always on the defensive that people actually get turned off Mm -hmm. um so a christian who's in politics should come with a humble spirit, should acknowledge his or her, his or her mistakes. Um, you know, you hold your convictions, but you hold them gracefully. And you yeah, try and
2: to- I, that would be true, too, of Christians who aren't in politics. So you're neither a pastor nor a politician. You're just a Christian, exactly. uh, but part of having a, a a biblical worldview means that you're going to have convictions. And, yes, because the uh, thing— the kingdom
3: of God uh, operates in every single realm of society, mm-hmm. and uh, the role of the politician or the role of the fire firefighter or, you know, the role of the teacher, they're all of equal value and strategic mm-hmm. in God's sight. Uh, otherwise, we retreat into a sort of a pietistic, inward-looking, holy huddle perspective. Instead of having a broadly-based biblical kingdom of God perspective, one of my favorite quotes. I think I've discussed it with you, Jake, is Abraham Kuyper, mm-hmm. who said there's not one square inch of ground on this earth over which Christ does not cry mine.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, Kuyper, you know, he put that into action. He founded a major university, it's a major university this day. When he finished doing that, he went into the political realm and founded a political party. And he ultimately became prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, and so you know Kuiper was a, a theologian he was a theology professor but he put his perspective of the king and he was an unusual man but he put his perspective of the kingdom into practice somehow if we can recover something of that uh I think we can enrich our discourse you know we can re- we, we can enrich our our effect on society we can be salt and light you know in a way that we need to be but part of the problem is that, particularly in American evangelicalism, and I I know we're um, I wondered if we were discussing eschatology today, but it everything will. Else, everything always comes <laughs> back to that because your eschatology it, does. it affects absolutely everything else you believe, even mm-hmm. if you don't realize it. And um, the major problem with American evangelicalism was it was so dominated by dispensationalism in the first part of the twentieth century. And part of the whole dispensational thing is The world belongs to the devil. You know, God can't do anything about it. The only thing he can do is like the rescue mission out of Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. uh, except God's going to do it a little more effectively than, unfortunately, (laughs) has been the case. And uh, I noticed today that some Canadians were rescued by the Ukrainian army. I'm Mm -hmm. not quite sure how that happened, but I'm very grateful for it. And so we had this mentality where we all withdrew into this holy huddle because the world was going to pot and God just rescued us out of it. Mm -hmm. And Christians became, you know, in the 19th century, Christians in the 18th century, even in the, say, in the United States, Harvard, Yale, all those places were founded by Christians, some of them by descendants of Jonathan Edwards, the great Mm -hmm. preacher. Christians were profoundly involved. In the whole social realm of education, healthcare, politics—you name it—everything—and then we withdrew because of the dispensational influence. And when we got back into it, in say the 1970s, with Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority, as ancient history now, but we did it in a very clunky, offensive way, which really, you know, we 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 didn't know how to do it. And so, as Christians, we need to learn how to reengage with society in a way that we're where um you know people will actually listen to us where we've got intelligent things to say we're not just you know appearing to be moralistic and nasty people we come with a biblical worldview Mm -hmm. and uh part of the biblical worldview goes back to what Reformed theology always taught which is which what kuiper uh expressed which is you know that like i had an argument with a pentecostal pastor once and and he said well you know, the world belongs to the devil. And I said, well, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness there. <laughs> Which uh, we, we got Which one is it? We were good friends. But, you know, you've got to you got you to gotta make a choice here. Mm-hmm. And what do you really believe? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you can't go confident. If, if you believe that, like somebody, uh, uh, my friend Chris Palmer sent me something this morning, say, you know, now the Taliban or the um, you know, Gog and Magog. And I thought, oh, here we go again, you know, it was Russia, then it was Iran, then it was Saddam, and now it's the Taliban, and some dispensationalist preachers making money out of it, and the right. gospel being mm-hmm. discredited. And, and we go into all of that again, and mm-hmm. we have no, you know, practical means of engaging with this world in which we live, in which 95% of the Christians are living in the third world or other parts of the world, many of mm-hmm. whom are in severe persecution and are shaking their head at why are we worrying about having to wear masks or not when their lives are in danger. Mm. That's just a little rant on my part. Forgive
2: me. <laughs> well, that was great. Yeah, I mostly agree with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mostly, mostly
2: being the key word, right? No, um, um, no, I think agree is the key word. Agree. In all honesty, I, I really do. I'm in mean, complete agreement that the way that we view where we are in human history in regards to the redemptive plan of God is it affects the way that we view everything going on. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you have a lot of Christians right now that have this really fatalistic view. Of what's happening? And I understand if your if your lens is wrong, then you're going to see the whole thing mm-hmm. um, incorrectly. But I think studying eschatology is and and good eschatology mm-hmm. is is really key to that. Shout out. Dude, David Campbell has a couple of books that you can read. That's Mystery right. Explained is one terrific book. And then a, I guess a longer version of that is one that he wrote with uh, G.K. Beale um, called A Shorter Commentary. But I think it's like 4,000 pages in my iBooks uh, <laughs> on my phone. So it's actually not that short.
3: <laughs> you exaggerate. You should be an evangelist. <laughs> so I
2: think it's somewhere close to that, actually.
3: It's Well, I don't know what it is electronically. Oh, it's
2: 3,000. 3,041. 3, but that I, all, I guess, comes down to what size the right. font is. not it? right. So. right.
1: So I want to um I'm I'm interested. I you did a um you did a conversation with the Thiashu guys last week uh in the town hall and um you had some pretty strong statements first I got to say that was just an incredible conversation. Um I literally was up up here at the office trying to get some work done on Thursday and started and just listened to the whole thing and was like challenged and convicted and um all all of the above. But you made some pretty strong statements um about just kind of what your belief uh, about, kind of your belief about COVID, what you think COVID is, why you think it's here. Um, would love to just ask you to kind of just explain that to us. Um,
3: yeah. So what I said in in the recording last week, I went back to I was teaching in a church called Firm Foundation Ministries, which we have a, a deep association within set near Kalamazoo, Michigan. Last uh, January, so January 2020, early January. The first reports were coming out of China, you know, nothing had reached the Western world or anything like that. And I made the statement, this is one of the plagues of Revelation. Uh, I just I, I looked at it and I thought, this is it. And I'm I'm all, I know it was recorded, so I'm not fibbing and making it up, ahead, <laughs> but um, nor am I trying to, to pump up sales of my, my books or whatever. But so the reason I said that was within the context of the book of Revelation, um, The plagues or various judgments of God that are recorded there, there's four series of seven judgments because seven is the number of completion and of God, and four is the number of the earth. And so, four sets of seven judgments are the complete judgment of God on the earth. And so, these judgments are released from the throne room of God, commencing Revelation chapter 5. With the the ascension of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. Now that's very, very important. They do not involve a supposed seven year period prior to uh, an Armageddon type event. That's nowhere in the Book of Revelation. There is no seven year tribulation in the Book of Revelation. In fact, the word tribulation in the Book of Revelation refers to well, John says, "I am your partner in the tribulation." And he's writing that in A.D. 90, approximately. So tribulation in the New Testament always refers to ongoing events throughout the history of the church. I have to be careful. here; I don't lose my thread of thought. But the idea is that um, the judgments are released uh, throughout the history of the church, throughout the church age. The church age is the period of time between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And so all of this period of time is characterized by various judgments, which come down to war, famine, pestilence, disease, and so on, and including economic judgments. When I say that this is one of the plagues, the judgments of God that are released are significant. They're uh, uh, in fairly broad in scope, so it's not just something that, you know, affects one city or one community. Uh, and they have an effect which is um, economic, commercial, related to health or whatever. Uh, they, you know, they have this kind of impact on a large scale. And they occur cyclically throughout the history of the church. So on that basis, um, I think I called that one right because this certainly has, has been something. Even if you deny that, I mean, it isn't a sickness like the bubonic plague. All right, I agree with that but it has, it has um, had an economic dislocation on the mm-hmm. entire world in an extraordinary way. We'd all agree on that. Mm-hmm. So it qualifies. Uh, and so the question then is, if I accept that as a, a judgment from God, what is the purpose? You know, like, what is it that God's doing? We, we ought to know that as Christians. It might right. help us understand and because we want to work with God, not against him. Right. And if he, in the context of the book of Revelation. God is, is uh, addressing two spheres. One is the church, one is the world. And the judgment of God comes on, on the world, to, and, and God is primarily judging idolatry. And the I- idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. I don't mm-hmm. care whether it's uh, technology or medicine or the almighty dollar. Or whatever it might be, an atheist or false philosophy or religion, anything other than worship of the one true God in the Bible is idolatry. Idolatry is the basic sin, Genesis to Revelation. And that's why it's specifically singled out in the book of Revelation, idolaters. And so God is the addressing idolatry in the in in the world whenever he sends a judgment. But God is also addressing something in the church. And if you right. look at The seven churches of Revelation, seven is the number of God and of completion. So the seven churches that are addressed are representative of the universal church. And the things that are going on in those seven churches that John was writing to are absolutely representative of the body of Christ in a nation, a community, or even around the world at any one time. Two of them were in good shape. uh, Two of them were in really bad shape. Three were... Mediocre, which is, you know, look around, that's about where it is. And so, (laughs) uh, what is God addressing in the church? He's addressing lukewarmness, complacency, and compromise. Mm -hmm. And so, the Christians, the message of Revelation is the world is going to try to draw you into idolatry. It will punish you, it will exclude you or punish you economically, socially. It may even take your life, but you must not compromise. You will certainly lose something, maybe your life, but may just be economic punishment or judgment mm-hmm. or not judgment. But, you you know, you might lose your job. Consequence. The consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't compromise. Why? Because your heavenly reward is greater. Mm. Now, then people say, well, I thought there was no more judgment in the church. Somebody asked me this question after that discussion. Well, you know, the j- judgment is for the lost. But no, there's a word for for judgment, the judgment of condemnation. The Greek is katakryma. Uh, but there's also the w- verb krinol, which means to judge. And Paul says explicitly in 1 Corinthians that God is judging the church. That's why some mm-hmm. of you, are many of you are sick, and some have even died. Mm-hmm. And Revelation is the same si- ki- kind of idea. Jesus is coming to the church to judge it, to sift it, to prune it with the view of discipline and purifying. Mm-hmm. And so, the judgment against the world may result in eternal death, but when God disciplines the church, it's a redemptive purpose. So I, I'm sorry that's very long, but I'm trying to summarize something in the book, uh, profound in the book of Revelation in, you know, yeah. four or five minutes or something. And, and so what is our response then? So our response in the church as Christians is primarily what is God addressing in us? not looking over at the, our unsaved neighbor and pontificating yes. about what God's addressing in them, but how about me? What is God addressing in me, in my congregation, in my life as a Christian? Is there compromise? Is there lukewarmness? You know, is, is there in our society, our churches become, you know, mile wide and an inch deep, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of ha on a Sunday morning, everybody gets excited, but then they go home and they live the same way their unsaved neighbor does through the week or whatever. Right. You know, is there prayerlessness? Is there lack of... Uh, financial commitment is their lack of holiness and all these different things uh is there compromise with idolatry uh and and god is is and we have to answer that question and if the church i know the church i'm using it broadly but i'll just say for the sake of argument if the church comes out of this the same as it went into it we will Mm -hmm. not have heard god speaking in a major Mm period of judgment and that is a very serious matter we need to hear what the let him who has ears hear what the spirit is saying
2: yeah it's really good that's a lot <laughs> yeah I, through the course of that I've had like five questions mm-hmm. that I've wanted to ask or statements that I want to make but I think you're spot on honestly I, I do think that the church needs to be concerned with how it is responding to what is going on in the world which is always under the sovereignty of the Lord, a, a direct extension of what God is doing in the earth. And I guess I like that you specified some examples of what compromise could look like, because I just, I keep coming back to the issue of COVID in my head. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's, that's kind of the platform that a lot of Christians are standing on when it comes to their staunch opposition to vaccines or whatnot. And I say this as a, I've as a, I have I've been vaccinated. Mike's been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, our, our wives have been vaccinated? We're not anti-vax mm-hmm. at all. I don't mind people having a differing opinion about whether or not they want to be vaccinated. I I really don't mind that at all. And that's been our approach throughout a lot of this is I see it as a a matter of personal conscience and maturity is allowing people to uh, approach the issue according to their personal conscience and their faith. But I know that that there are some Christian voices, kind of going back to that initial tweet that you read about spinelessness in the pulpit, where they're seeing this as an example of compromise if you're not... Mm. You know, anti-vax, anti-whatever. Mm-hmm. That's it's really a poor example. Um,
1: yeah, people are taking that word "compromise" and kind of using it to fit,
3: kind of fit whatever they want it to fit.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Expand upon that thoughts. Well, then I
3: think that's a satanic deception in the sense. I'm not saying that this man's de- satanically deceived because I don't know him or who he is, but it's a satanic deception if we go through all this and all we think God is calling us to do. Is stand up against certain policies of a, a government official. We have not even begun to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches because right. God is addressing deep issues of where is our commitment? Um, you know, are we, uh, w- where is the stewardship of the life, the resources? You know, what does our day to day life look like? Where is our church life not reflecting New Testament Christianity? And the reason we're having many churches are having little effect is because they've become kind of, you know, religious institutions Mm -hmm. that have lost the ability to communicate with the world outside. And they also have been, you know, they are many of them. Churches are shot through with compromise, including gossip, division, backbiting, slander, And that's compromise, that's the work of the enemy. Uh, Prayerlessness, uh, superficiality, lack of covenant commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, These are things that the Western church, there are rife in the Western church. And um, I came to Christ at the tail end of what was called the Jesus movement. Mm -hmm. And there was a tremendous visitation of God. There were changed lives you know, people went through the fire of the Spirit of God and came out different Mm -hmm. than they were before. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that's not happening either today. I'm just saying we've had a long period of lukewarmness where, you know, that sort of fiery transformation and the fire being the refining fire of the Holy Spirit has not been characteristic. And our churches are not full of people that are desperate and hungry for God in the way that we should be and in the way that churches were at the time when i came to christ Um, and maybe that's affected me and set a standard a higher standard but uh that's that's what i experienced and i believe it's one of the reasons why so many millions of people came to christ it was the last time on this continent we had any kind of visitation of of god in that way
2: at that uh, level yeah Yes. I mean, I guess it, it's worth saying that compromise is a direct uh, result of worldliness creeping into the church. And th- that's worth saying, but it does, the mature Christian needs to be able to discern like what that worldliness really is. And I love that you started quoting, I think that's from probably First or second Timothy, like the New Testament doesn't leave us uh it doesn't leave us without idea as to what these kinds of compromises mm-hmm. look like. Paul has those long is it first Timothy or second Timothy, where he has that long list of um behavior like disobedience to parents and all that kind of stuff and yeah, um yeah, I think yeah. being able to hone in on that and really know our Bibles will help us to discern what in the world is an example of the temptation to compromise and what's just just part of living in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in human society, and a, you know, a vaccine, in in my view, is certainly just part of living in a human society. And again, I understand that people have logical reasons for being resistant to that, um, and I don't think that those are totally debunked. But I do think it's a, this is one of those to me. This is such a secondary thing that mm. we need to be unified in the essentials. Um, and, and, and Jake,
3: that's that's my fear you know, people are breaking friendships, Uh, churches are being divided over what over nothing to do with the gospel, but over peripheral matters, uh, such as your opinion on, you know, masks, vaccine restrictions, whatever. And when we come out of all of this, and God willing, all of that is behind us, those divisions will still be there, those friendships will still have been destroyed. Mm. And for no good gospel reason, and so, a mature Christians will learn to live with, and you know, people within the body of Christ who have different opinions on these mm-hmm. topics without breaking fellowship over them.
2: Yeah, so, that's so important,
3: and that's part of the worldliness in the church. The churches divide over the dumbest wow. things. Mm-hmm. It's, in my experience as a pastor, nearly forty years, the issue is almost always control, but it's it's dressed up as some in some spiritual guise. that mm. it's usually who's running the show, and that's mm. carnality, immaturity, and so we just need to, you know, really ask the Holy Spirit to give us a wake up call so that we don't damage our churches and our friendships and our relationships. You know, I mean, anybody that's listening to me, please. You know, if you have a friend who is on the other side of some of these issues, uh, do not allow the devil to destroy a precious friendship or covenant mm-hmm. relationship so that mm-hmm. you can't work with them in the cause of the kingdom in the years to come because you are on two different sides of an issue like this. Mm-hmm. Like this.
2: Yeah, that's sage advice. Mm-hmm. Now that is great. That's great. Um,
1: well, man, I think that's, um, I think that's the time we got, but honestly, thank you. That was, that was really, really good. Really helpful. Indeed. Um, we really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks,
0: David.